Hello and welcome to another JogPod podcast. This podcast is a little different from the others, largely due to COVID-19. Today I'm talking to Dr. Mary Geary, who's a human geographer and research fellow at Brighton University. Um, I'd like to talk to you first about the book you've got coming out. Really exciting. It's July the 3rd, so it's almost now. The title, English Wetlands, Spaces of Nature, Culture, Imagination, which you've written with two colleagues. Yes, I have. Yes. So this is a product of um, a wonderful project that I've been working on for the last three years, which is called Wetland Life. And you can find all about it on our website, which is called wetlandlife.org and uh, the project is part of a value in nature program which is a suite of projects uh, concerned with trying to understand uh, future tipping points around health and human health and well-being in in in, uh, in response to climate change and so with wetland life we've been working to try and understand human health and well-being as experienced within wetlands uh, so a really exciting project spent three years with my welly boots on going out and about interviewing people um, we have a range of colleagues that worked on this particular project so we've had entomologists who've been looking at uh, mosquito populations on, on wetlands we've been we've worked with artists as well who have been doing some interventionist work with people working and living on wetlands and the work that i've been doing uh, with colleagues at greenwich university has been around understanding uh, different types of people using wetlands uh, in particular i've been looking at specialist interest groups so that would be birders and uh, wildlife photographers um, spiritual practitioners uh, nat uh, nature naturalists I shouldn't say naturist. I almost said that then. I keep saying myself, don't say naturist. Um, and, and a whole range of people who just really enjoy going to wetland spaces. So um, this book is really a kind of... Um, uh, a kind of reflection on the different ways that people use and enjoy wetlands for their human health and well-being and uh, and indeed what that might mean for future days for wetlands in terms of our relationship with them our use and protection of them uh, and we've been using mosquitoes as a as a as if you like um as an avatar to think about what climate change may mean on those particular spaces. Uh, we were trying to understand um, how people feel about uh, uh, mosquito species um, and what kinds of range of mosquito species live on those different on the different case study sites that we've been looking at. Uh, so it's been a really interesting way of um, interrogating uh, interspecies relationships, I guess, between humans and mosquitoes within these wetland ecosystems. There's just a wealth of interesting information on that website, and we can put the link in, uh, in the written work that goes with, with this podcast. I thought that uh, Tim Acott's photo essay was absolutely wonderful. If you're talking about a, a, a teacher looking at this and wanting to link English, art, geography, mm. uh, this is just a, a wonderful collection uh, of, of varied academics getting together to bring a holistic view yes yes you're right i mean tim's photos are really beautiful uh he's done an amazing job of going across really very varied uh different wetlandscapes to capture different moods different feelings different articulations of of experiences on those sites um and in fact we had a um, an exhibition at the royal geographical society back in january 
um, and uh, Tim's photos were a really important part of that um, presentation of the project work. We've had such a variety of project work. Uh, so we've had Tim's wonderful photos. As I've said, we've had some artists working uh, on the project. Um, we've had, so the, we, of the three different um, artists that we have, which is uh, Kerry Morrison, Helmut Lemke and Victoria Leslie. Uh, Victoria is a writer and so she's been working around the, the written word and the spoken word when we when we think about our um, uh, our relationship with wetlands and she set up uh, a series of things called word hides. So rather than bird hides, word hides, where people can go and read stories about wetlands, they can write their own stories and share their reflections on wetlands through postcards. Uh, Helmet's been capturing soundscapes on the wetlands, which um, which has been really, really quite tremendous about capturing these different esoteric moments on the sites. And uh, Kerry's been thinking about connecting with people and getting people to connect with wetlands. So uh, has created something called Wetland on Wheels, which is a caravan that goes around these different wetland spaces so that people can come and have a look at mosquito species uh, under microscopes. Uh, can think about drawing their own interpretations of mosquitoes and tell stories about the things that they do and enjoy on those spaces. Uh, so the work that I've been doing kind of fits very neatly with the work that the artists have been doing in terms of interviewing people about why they really love to spend their time on wetland spaces and in wetland spaces. And for a whole range of different reasons, you know, we have people who gain physical health from going onto those sites, you have people that enjoy solitude and being alone and, and going at for particular times of the day. Uh, one of the things that I was really intrigued by is that um, there's quite a number of uh, bird watchers who prefer to go in the dawn and at dusk, uh, often female bird watchers, so going on their own in these moments. So in spaces where you would think that they wouldn't feel particularly safe, actually they feel they say to me that they feel safer in nature on their own in the dark than they would do walking through a town centre in the early evening. So it's been really interesting around that. Um, thinking about people uh, developing uh, spiritual solace from these spaces as well, being able to go and reflect. And so um, the book really deals with that in lots of different ways, thinking about wetlands as remembrance spaces and commemoration spaces. So thinking about past lives, thinking about loved ones that have passed on, but also places to have celebrations and, and, and make memories. So activity stays with families. Um, we also have, uh, you know, people um, going on, on walks together to commemorate times that have passed, having birthday parties on wetlands. So um, it's been really interesting for me because I, when I started this project, um, I didn't know very much about wetlands and I really have grown to love them in the last three years that I have spent um, researching and wading in wellies upon them. Well, I was going to ask you about that because the, the book's lovely. Uh, I haven't read it, of course, yet, but the, the, the premise, it focuses on, as you've said, on the joy of slowing down and taking time to immerse yourself in these quite less managed spaces. Mm, yes. But I then thought, I wonder what most people imagine when, when they hear the term wetland and when you start talking about mosquitoes. Because mm. um, I suppose I look out from our window here and I'm looking at um, uh, the, um, the curlews, although not quite just yet. Uh, this is a, a typical sort of wetland out of my window, moorland wetland, and the midges come off. And, and if we ever try to have a barbecue on them in our back garden, we've no chance because the tiny little biting midges come out. So what, 
what is it what do you think people imagine when they they hear the term wetland and what actually are wetlands well, that I will try and answer that as well as I can. Yeah, so that is actually one of the key uh, elements of the research that we that, that, that I undertook was to try and understand what people mean or understand by wetlands. So it's one of the first questions that I would ask the, the, the respondents that I worked with. Now, the people that I work with are obviously, um, they're, they're, not gen they're not necessarily general members of the public. They have there are people who have chosen to go to wetland spaces, so they already have a familiarity with those spaces. But it's very interesting to me that um, that uh, for a lot of them, when asking about wetlands, they imagine this, this this space as being, I guess, an archetypal wetland, which would be a mix between uh, green and blue space, so that you would have uh, either um, a river environment or a lake environment, that you would have wild um, wetland birds there that you would have wetland fauna and flora so you'd have your willows and your bulrushes um, and your sphagnum moss and very bucolic scenes I guess is what I'm saying is that uh, people have this this kind of imagined natural wilder space uh, when in fact wetlands wetlands can be all sorts of, of, of different kinds of landscapes and, and in particular uh, the work that we've done, um, we based on three different case study sites. So one was based on the Somerset levels, so just outside of Glastonbury. And we were based on Shapwick Heath and West Haymoor. And if you like, those are your archetypal wetland landscapes that you would imagine in your mind with these wonderful, you know, flowing channels and with swans and with all sorts of wonderful wildlife and the booming of bitterns as well which is always a really fantastic thing to hear when you're when you're out uh, in the wetlands um, and then we also had um, two urban wetlands based in Bedfordshire that was Priory Country Park and Millennium Country Park both of which are constructed wetlands from old gravel pits and old um, um, clay pits so those have been reconstructed over the last 30, 30, 40 years now. And so they look more naturalised, but actually they're, they're part of our industrial heritage. So they have been there to cover landfill. They have been there to restore, um, I guess, quite ravaged landscapes, brownfield sites. There was a power station based on uh, uh, Priory Country Park in Bedfordshire. So, But that's kind of been erased. And so you have this greening of this area that, again, creates a very a more naturalised landscape. But it's still a wetland, even though the people that... that that actually go to those those um, those two different urban wetlands actually consider it more of a, a kind of a hybrid between um, a kind of a, I guess a smaller park and less managed space but they wouldn't necessarily call it a wetland you know when I would say that these are important wetlands often they would be um, look at me askance and say well it's really a a pit with some grass around it yeah. uh, and then the the third case study site that we looked at was Orkborough Flats in Lincolnshire. And on those particular, that particular site is a uh, managed realignment. So an element of the of the of farmland has been allowed to be broached by um, the Trent River, in order to control flooding in, in on the Humber, so that um, further down the Humber in Hull and Gould, that that will prevent flooding in those spaces. So in some ways, the the kind of rural space has been. Um, uh, I guess allowed to be flooded has been kind of devoted to that flood risk management approach 
in order to protect the urban scape further downstream. Um, and so what you have then is, if you like, a return to how the uh, that particular area of coastline would have looked a very long time ago. But it's relatively new wetlands, and so what that means is that it's still in formation. Um, the management plan around that site is still in transition, and so you have a lot of reed bed um, that's grown up around that site. So there is still, if you like, a, um, it's still in formation, it's still continuing, it's still kind of in its evolution. And so for some people, it doesn't have that kind of softer touches that say the Somerset site has uh, in terms of established um, established um, different types of fauna. Um, and so it, it, it's interesting that for some people that landscape uh, in Orkborough Flats, particularly because you have Drax Power Station not so far away, feels um it feels almost quite bleak i suppose and so it, it but that in itself creates a different series of responses from our respondents some people love the austerity and they love the bleakness and they and they love the fact that if you like it's a harder place to engage with and that means that there are fewer people that go and that is part of the joy of it too it really is a space where they people can find solitude it's not overwhelmed by people whereas the urban wetlands they're very free, you know they're very very well used which of course is joyous because it's a it's an amazing way that people can access less managed space very close to their homes but that can be something that deters if you like the hardcore wetland users who want it to be just for themselves and for nature so we have all these different tensions about who's using the wetlands and how they're using them which makes them such interesting spaces to study I was really surprised when I looked at um, you know, doing a little bit of research on wetlands and it, it, it says there's only 10% remain from what we had a thousand years ago. Well, that's fair enough with monks draining areas and mm. us uh, opening floodplains out for building. I asked my wife, who's not a geographer, where she thought most of the wetlands would be. And then we had a look at the distribution and almost all of them are in upland areas. As mm -hmm. far on a, on a large scale map of the UK anyway, and a lot of them are designated as SSSIs. Um, but the future potential, as you're talking about a little bit, is in lowland areas, isn't it? That's right. That's right. So there is um, a, a project that's going on at the moment called Wetland Vision. And the aim is to try and restore and rehabilitate landscapes to, 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 to bring them back to their original wetland status as a way of, I mean, because th this is one of the things I think which is kind of undervalued really in that kind of um, hybrid between physical and human geography is the importance of wetlands for climate change mitigation and adaptation. They are amazing and varied ecosystems which are so important for carbon sequestration. They're so important for uh, purifying air and, and, and reducing air and water pollution and improving water quality. Um, again, for biodiversity, they're amazing. As we know, so many different forms and ecotones in those particular spaces. And I think then the idea of trying to rehabilitate those spaces, part of that is about enabling people to really understand the importance of these spaces through education and through published research and a way i guess i guess of, of enabling wetland practitioners so those different wildlife trusts who are looking after wetlands and the wetland vision itself to try and really celebrate wetlands and really raise their profile across the country as spaces that people can 
enjoy and visit. And I think, I, I don't know how you feel, John, but the, I feel that one of the responses from uh, coronavirus has been that people have really started to value open spaces. You know, if you if you can visit them anytime, you tend to not worry about them and, and really think about them. But the moment you can't go to them is the moment that you want to go. And that seems to be the response is that as soon as people can go outside, they want to go to more less managed spaces such as wetlands. But the trick really is to encourage people to access these spaces respectfully. I think it's it's interesting that um, the response to flooding has been quite often get those rivers red get the rivers dredged clear them out clear the water off and this is the opposite where you're talking about holding waters back but it's convincing people that that's an effective way of doing it when they see well if you dredge you'll shift the water out very quickly problem solved there's a huge education um, issue around convincing people that this sort of wetland storage is much more effective than dredging yes i think i think you're right i think it's it's going to take a long time to move away from that narrative of uh you know dredge and move off as quickly as possible and i wonder whether as we move into more climate change impacted times whether people will recognize that actually um that idea of storing water in landscape is really important because we're going to be flip-flopping between periods of these intense rainfall events and also drought events as well so we need to think of different ways of managing our water resources um, not necessarily for our consumption of them but for the ecological value for landscapes and for wildlife about keeping that water on site um, I mean one of the outcomes of the result of the research has been that um, there has been some there are tension still around having wetlands for water storage um, on the Somerset site, for instance, um, these are, again, these are constructed wetlands, if you like, in that they were reversed from, from farmland. Um, they kind of replaced the, the peat extraction that's been going on in that space for, for many hundreds of years. Now, so, that, so even these, these landscapes that look very natural are actually um, anthropogenically shaped. Um, but on those spaces, keeping water levels elevated to attract uh, waterfowl has created tensions in the local community and that for some of the farmers, they feel that the water levels have been kept at an elevated level uh, at, at the wrong times of the year, leading to some flooding when you've, got, when, you, when you've already got a saturated and high water table, that when you have these rainfall events, that there's nowhere else for the water to go apart from on adjacent land. So those tensions are still there, they're still valid, but I think what's really important is that we talk about it, that we have an open dialogue where stakeholders are able to discuss about how we're going to manage our water. So rather than it being removed from everyday life, I think it's really important that we try and widen the discussion to include more people in water governance as much as we can. I've been doing an awful lot of work recently just above us on um, on Bleaklow and Kinder. Uh, because that's uh, the the peat has been drying out, so they've been trying to maintain the wet, um, the level of of water in the in the peat, because mm. otherwise the gruffs are just disappearing. So that's an interesting, another interesting wetland that perhaps gets forgotten as as being a wetland because it's 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 a bog or a, or a peat bog rather than than anywhere where you might imagine. As my wife was doing the the. The fens as being a wetland, mm. but not not the the bogs up another 
five miles up the road on the, the Peak District. I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that what that um, that 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 shaped the, the the case study science that we used on wetland life was we obviously because we're thinking about about humans, wetlands, and mosquitoes, we needed to find case study sites where there was going to be enough of a human interaction that we'd be able to get enough research material. So, if you like. You know, we're very aware that those those um, upland bogs, uh, raised bogs and moors, was something that w weren't quite included in the research, but they are discussed in the book because um, of the different ways in which we revere and love these different types of landscape and what they mean for our national and cultural psyche. So, um, yeah, I think it's 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 an interesting one, isn't it? I'm really hoping with the book that it will make people think about wetland spaces in very different ways and recognise that they come in so many different forms. So you have your you have your coastal um, salt salt marshes, you have your riverine floodplains, you have your wet meadows, you have your wet woodlands, you have your raised bogs, you have your lakeside so you have so many different forms of landscape which we all enjoy but we wouldn't necessarily link with being a wetland but they all are different kinds of wetland and they all function in slightly different ways so um uh yeah I, I, it's been really interesting for me as well to connect with other researchers um in different spaces so we've been working with the wet futures team um who are based in ireland and also in in the netherlands and they're doing a lot of work around um, around peat, peatlands, and protecting peatlands. And I think again, that's um, in fact uh, yesterday, I believe, was World Pe World Peatland Day. Um, and so I think it's really it's been really fascinating to try and connect these different strands of work together um, to think about these particular kinds of landscapes. I think particularly with with peat, you know, that's something that's really been important in the Somerset site about thinking about that transitioning from one form of agriculture or one form of in agro industry to a kind of post-industrial livelihood and it is difficult it is difficult particularly in very rural spaces about thinking about how to support people with different ways of income generation and and so wetlands are part of that dialogue and you've not just been looking at um wetlands in the UK have you because for the for the book you've been to wetlands in Hong Kong South Africa Brazil yes I've been very very fortunate I mean I've done that that classic uh, geographer trick of kind of juggling lots of different things so um, part of that research was also so um, part of those trips were also about um, doing some work uh, on renaturing cities which is of course what I've been writing about for, for the um, for the association's journal um, and also looking at uh, environmental justice issues as well uh, a lot of the work I've been doing is about about environmental activists with elders so it's kind of combining it all together so I've been very fortunate to see a wide variety of, um, of wetlands um, the wetlands in Hong Kong I don't know if you've ever had a chance to go John but really fascinating because mm. um, you know we think of Hong Kong as a very urbanized space uh, and actually there are lots of green elements uh, either both integral to the to the to the center of Hong Kong but also on its fringes as well so the Mai Po wetlands is part of that you've got the Hong Kong wetlands and the Mai Po wetlands they're kind of sister wetlands and they're in the new territories of Hong Kong so they're on the border between Hong Kong SAR and China 
And so when you walk through MyPo wetlands, not only do you have to sign in with the with the Chinese guards as you go in, but you kind of walk through a, a kind of a border tower and there's a, a chain link fence. And it's been re really, I mean, I talk about it in the book, it's really reflective for me thinking about how of course, environmental systems don't uh, pay no attention to uh, national borders, and nowhere's more obvious than there that um, you know you'll have your wonderful mudskippers flip-flopping between two different countries without ever knowing what they're doing. Um, and it's just fascinating to be in this very less managed space, lots of mangroves in that particular wetlands, but with Shenzhen City only miles away with this population of around 11 million i think it is in shenzhen and the population of hong kong too which i think is around 8 million i think don't quote me on that geographers i'm not sure um but so it's this, this incredible oasis of calm and nature in a really urbanized space um and yet still still not visited enough i think you know that's again you want people to come and visit these spaces to really appreciate how beautiful they are. But again, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, John, about this need to slow down. And maybe in a, a post-coronavirus world, this is what we're all learning to do, to really slow down and pay attention to our surroundings. Well, that ties really well in because you've just mentioned there the, the article. It, it's um, Nature-Based Solutions. Barcelona's Sustainable City and it's um, it's in the spring 2019 edition of Teaching Geography. So that that um, urban, understanding urban wetlands ties in really nicely because your examples are from Barcelona and and renaturing in Barcelona aren't mm. they? Um, Barcelona's, you talk about it being a sustainable city um, and but then in the, at the beginning you talk about all these other terms as well, which teachers and students might find it confusing. There's resilient cities, green cities, smart cities, circular cities, equitable yes. cities. There's so many terms. And then you talked about Hong Kong. In, um, in 2019, um, Mark Higginbottom and I took the, uh, the geography A-level students to the IGO Geography Olympiad, which was held in Hong Kong. And mm. chance to go and walk and see some of the wetlands. The theme for the poster which they had to do was called Discovering a Vibrant City for Our Smart Future. <laughs> so we've got resilient, we've got vibrant, we've got green, we've got smart, we've got circular, we've got equitable. Yeah. So I, I just thought I'd, I'd ask you how you see the terms and how you think we might cut through that and make it a little bit better to understand for, for, for A-level students. It is a tricky one. It is a tricky one. And of course, all those different, dif all of those different descriptors for those particular kinds of cities, like a circular city or a smart city or a sponge city, they all have their particular, I guess, characteristics, which would frame that. Um, I suppose to even add even more to the mix as a means to, to make things a little bit more simple, I suppose another way of thinking about it is about creating livable cities. Given that we are, uh, you know, we are now living on a planet in which most of the population of the world now live in cities. I think, I think urbanisation is predicted to rise to around 80% in about 2050. Cities have to be made livable. This is where most of the population on the planet are going to be living. And they're going to be living in cities which are going to be greatly impacted in lots of different ways by climate change. So whether that's to do with um, 
peat islands or whether that's to do with air or water pollution or lack of access to green or blue spaces how are people going to be able to live with each other make a living live sustainably um, live equitably and I think livability is one of those uh, I guess terms that kind of maybe makes things a little bit more simple in terms of thinking about how are we going to make uh, urban spaces which are I guess built for humans to support humans and to support human relationships one of the things that i have really enjoyed by looking at the whole uh renaturing city scholarship has been about this concept of bon viveur i don't know if you've come across that before john no so bon viveur is a way of uh, is the good life that's exactly what it means in yes. spanish the good life and so it's about that it's about how we create spaces which enable conviviality amongst people that are affordable um, that we are if you like making space for the changes that climate change is going to bring so in terms of making space for water within cities making access to greener spaces to cool down cities and to make them more aesthetically pleasing um, and Barcelona is a great example of that in the way in which it's really thinking about improving livability thinking about livelihoods and thinking about creating closer connections between people and really building communities of solidarity because I think that's what we're going to need in future days we're going to need to have to work with each other um, against all the different tensions that we find so um, I, I hope that that makes things a little bit more simple um, well it does I'd, I'd like the idea of, of a livability um, mm. when you get onto a, a city being sustainable Mm -hmm. Then we get into the problems of, of interpretations of, of what we mean by sustainable and whether you can have sustainable growth. Um, and yes. um, that, that gets us into the work that you talk about from Jackson in 2009 and Latouche and, and whether we can have an economic system predicated on growth. That's just problem. It is problematic, isn't it? It's problematic and it's contentious. Uh, I, I teach uh, the sustainable development module at Brighton, uh, the School of Environment and Technology. Uh, there are always tensions about whether we keep the word development in there, because what are we developing towards or developing for? So um, I, I, I think we first have to recognise it's a contentious term. I think we have to, again, uh, celebrate a diversity of views when we talk about sustainability. Uh, my own uh, particular stance on it is one which is connected to the degrowth scholarship, as you mentioned, Latouche, there, about this idea of finding ways to live within our planetary resources and to desire less. So there's an idea of self-sufficiency or self-containment. Um, uh, some people might say self-denial. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I think some of the interesting things that comes out about thinking about um, connecting or if you like decoupling sustainability from economic development is about a different way of living together. So again, it kind of it accords with this idea of livability. Um, so I, I've been thinking about this and I suppose if I was to throw my hat to the ring and say what I think that I mean by sustainability, I suppose what I would mean is um, forms of sustainable degrowths. So that idea, rather than this kind of rampant, more consumption, more accumulation, to try and live more within what we have and the means which we have. So if I was to try and, uh, I guess, phrase what I mean by sustainable degrowth, I would describe it as a way of 
the downscaling of production and consumption that increases human well-being. Uh, human well-being is something I've been very concerned with and, as I said, working with on the wetlands. So thinking about that, increasing human well-being, um, but while thinking about enhancing ecological conditions and equity on the planet, um, critical geographers have thought long and hard about, about the tensions around asking people to place limits on their desires and limits on their consumption, whilst recognising that that isn't equitable across all of the planet. You know, we are enjoying the fruits of industrialization in the global north, and now we have the, 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 the privilege of being able to say we don't want it anymore. Well, some people have never had that experience of, of the comfort of modern living that we have had for so long. So we have to recognise that um, uh, in terms of uh, planetary equi equability, that we need to find a way of enabling everybody to have access, if you like, to bon viveur, to the good life, just our definitions of what that may mean may change according to where you are on the planet. But what we do know is that this continual desire for more consumption and for more products and for more things that we don't necessarily need is not good for the planet and it's actually not good for our human psyche either. So this idea of slowing down and taking stock of what we have and being more mindful, I think, is a, is a, is a way forward. Um, but it's, it's contentious. And again, as I said before, I think the answer is to have as much dialogue as we can to think about ways of being together uh, in forms of community, uh, uh, solidarity and community. Which gets us actually to, to what you were writing about in, in terms of nature-based solutions, I think, mm. uh, a different approach. Mm. Um, you talked earlier on about blue and green infrastructure. And so that would be useful for you to explain what nature-based solutions are and what blue and green infrastructure means mm. so nature-based solutions is a way of trying to work with nature rather than against nature so we you know we talked before about that old narrative of for instance getting trying to get water off the surface of the planet as quickly as possible into the sea to try and prevent flooding that was a kind of flood management approach and now we're more in a flood risk management approach we recognize that flooding is something which uh that we have to learn to work with and we have to um, factor into our ways of being on the planet. So nature-based solutions are working with nature essentially. So examples are uh, creating urban wetlands so that we can store water um, rather than having towns flooded or trying to build more and more grey infrastructure to prevent flooding because that's not working. We can think about the ways in which we can think of um, solutions to uh, air pollution by creating more um, spaces for nature so more planting of trees which will then help uh, soil compaction and it will help uh, water filtration through the soil and it will improve uh, it will create landscapes of biodiversity in different bio biodiversity corridors um, we can think about the ways in which um, we can Maybe, and this is again contentious, that some spaces of, uh, of our coastline will have to be left for nature. The idea of continually creating um, uh, coastal sea defences and continually shoring up spaces with more and more concrete isn't going to work. So we might have to uh, accept that we have to leave some spaces for nature. So that means, if you like, we're using nature as, as part of our, our, our ways of um, of I guess working with 
changes in our um, in our climate and changes in our weather patterns but we also have to recognize that as humans we also need to change our habits as well and our ways of I guess uh, living and working with landscapes um, so when we think about green and blue infrastructure there's lots of particularly when we think about urban environments there's lots of things that we we can create so we can think about for instance the dual role that spaces can play so we can think about urban parks as being obviously spaces for recreation and leisure but they can also then be maybe devoted over to, to making space for water if we have heavy rainfall events. A great example is um, in, uh, in the Netherlands where they have um, actually created spaces within parks that basically are allowed to flood and so um, during flooding periods uh, these spaces move from being public amenities to water reservoirs uh, I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And so rather than seeing it as something that's lost lost space, in fact, what's added is you have different environments at different times of years or different episodes or different cycles of time. That's, that's one kind of example. We can also think about um, uh, the ways in which um, blue spaces are important for... Um, for wildlife habitats. So again, uh, in terms of nature-based solutions, rather than um, thinking about wildlife being separated from our everyday living environments, we kind of welcome welcome that into our everyday spaces as well. Um, we can think about the ways in which we can we can look at new new food systems within urban spaces as well. So we have obviously we have green roofs where people can grow food and have apiaries and aviaries. And we can think about the ways in which we can uh, populate, if you like, uh, space which is peripatetic in a way. Maybe uh, there's a space where um, building has yet to be commenced or whether it's a brownfield site that's going to be repurposed. And you can have mobile gardens in there through skips. You can bring mm. skips in and fill it through full of soil. And so if you like, that overcomes green spaces. That means that you're softening the, the aesthetics through lines and sight lines you're also of course you know bringing more air moisture into that space through these greening of these plants you're also overcoming social justice issues when you think about for instance we call them food deserts where there are parts of cities where people find it hard either to access uh, affordable healthy food or they don't have their own outdoor space to grow their own food and these kind of mobile gardens, these community gardens that are based in skips, that basically could be moved around the city if that space is then reclaimed for, for, for development. But those that those um, those growing areas can be kept, they can just be simply moved around. So that overcomes issues of um, access to space and access to good food and also helps promote connectivity between people and um, where their food comes from because there is a big disconnect for some people that... that mm. Uh, we, we've lost that. We've lost that kind of touch of nature too. We can think about the ways in which um, uh, we can um, we can improve health and well-being by getting people to go and exercise in green spaces. So, in terms of nature-based solutions, we can think about. I think Jules Pretty has talked about a dose of nature that, rather than relying, for instance, on medication or um, some other form of, uh, I guess prescriptive behavior in terms of trying to make people better another public health solution is simply allowing people to have greater access to outdoor space but trying to make that um, accessible to urban spaces too so we think about creating um, 
arboreal walkways, so tree-lined spaces where people can walk across cities, they can walk to work or they can, they can walk just for their health and well-being. We can think about the ways in which um, uh, people can access uh, the countryside through these green spokes, through creating more um, cycle channels. So if you like, nature-based solutions comes in lots of different forms when we think about what it means both to, again, improve the livability of cities and that is partly to do with also improving people's health and well-being and making people feel comfortable and confident to use more naturalized spaces as well that's really fascinating i was thinking of biodiversity corridors and greening of the cities and it having to be a wide sort of corridor mm. but actually it can be relatively small yes i think i think it's that um i think this idea that you have to have these grand standing changes in urban spaces is probably not helpful because uh, with that takes a lot of money and investment and of course we think about when we when we think about these um these these big developments that can occur in cities that are um in terms of greening we of course have this knock-on effect of the potential of actually then making property prices much higher and pushing people out of those spaces that really need them the most. So, we, you know, of course, that's classic gentrification strategies. And so I think these smaller iterations of improving, uh, of improving just the everydayness of, of livability. So whether it's people putting out plant pots or planting trees outside their houses or um, refurbishing dead spaces that, that could just do with a bit of TLC all of those small interactions and small interventions can then also connect with the wider ones, the kind of city-wide implemented ones. So if we look at Barcelona, we see a, a classic example of that being a city-led vision. Um, and it's a politicised vision because it is connected to um, Barcelona being the powerhouse of Catalonia and that movement towards Catalonian independence. So if you like, these 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 um, renaturalising um uh, I guess developments can't be disconnected from other political aims as well. That's one thing that we need to be aware of. But I think you can have these interventions at different scales, and I think they're very important. But I think again, the really the, the thing that always needs to be done, and there are some examples in Barcelona where this hasn't been done, is of making sure that local communities are really involved. So it's not a top-down, it's not a top-down um, intervention. It's not a top-down. Uh, change of where people live or how they live is something that's also mediated from the grassroots upwards so it's a community-led endeavor as well and we've seen that across lots of different spaces around the world when we think about transition towns and we think about the way in which people have galvanized support for different ways of being on the planet um, and nature-based solutions are part of that of moving away from gray infrastructure everything being orientated around petrol-based road developments and um, and hard standing and larger buildings and thinking about softening the landscape through green and blue uh, attributes. It's interesting what you said about Barcelona and about, about understanding place because solutions don't necessarily migrate from one place to another and work effectively at all. What made you choose Barcelona as the example? Well, I, I suppose if I was honest, Barcelona chose me in a way. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, be selected to join uh, an EU training school, thinking about sustainability in urban spaces. And it turned out that that uh, 
training school was in Barcelona. So oh, was is that Intrepid? The Intrepid training intrepid. That's yeah. right, yes. And so uh, it was a really wonderful opportunity to meet with um, some wonderful scholars. I think there were about 20 of us all from, from across Europe learning together about sustainability transitions in urban spaces. And so we spent a lot of time in Barcelona. Uh, and part of that was also working with the city council as well. They were very keen to get involved in the intrepid process, which is really refreshing because often you have this disconnect between research and uh, policy. And this was really bringing it all together. So we really were learning about what was happening in, in Barcelona and they were learning from us about what was happening in our home countries and our own pieces of scholarship that we, we were undertaking. And... Um, as part of that, we walked around, did a lot of walking in Barcelona. So we did a lot of walking around the city, looking at different city spaces, um, and particularly looking at the innovation which they are, uh, I guess, slowly rolling out across Barcelona, which are called the uh, Super Islands. Mm. Unfortunately, my Spanish isn't good enough to try and say the Super Illes. <laughs> Um, is, is, is Barcelona laid out in squares? Does that make it easier? Because when I looked at the map, it, mm. it's, it's a it's a grid pattern. I haven't it been is. to Barcelona. How bad's that? I, I need to go. It, wow. It, yes, no, I know. These, that, that's what people say. Wow, you've never been? Yeah. <laughs> well, in these post-coronavirus times, that might be put that on your on your hit list. Yeah, it is in a grid format. And I guess that's what lends itself to this this innovation. So the idea behind the super islands is a way of trying to reduce... Well, it's, it's multi-stranded, so it's trying to reduce traffic flow across the city through basically, very simplistically, blocking off some lanes of traffic. So what you end up with then is this kind of, where you would have had an intersection of four lanes of traffic, you now have two lanes of traffic meeting each other, and then in the space where, uh, the, where, the, uh, where the traffic has been reduced, that then becomes an island amongst this traffic, but that island then is connected to arboreal walkways is connected to cycle lanes so you can get in and out and across the city without having to use a car or a bus if you choose you can cycle and you can walk um, deliveries are taken in on bikes delivery bikes almost like the old-fashioned delivery bikes um, and the idea is that those spaces then are transformed into something else so in the first iteration if you like that transformation is sculpted as a way of showing what can be but in the, the aim is over time for the communities to determine what those social spaces could look like. So an example is that um, at the moment they, that, that these spaces are, um, they have trees in these big containers. So again, they can be moved. So if the community decides they want them moved from out the middle of the square, they can be moved to the side. There is space to put your table so that people are encouraged to eat outside as a form of conviviality and as a recognition, I guess, of a warming climate so we want to spend more time outside because it's hotter it's too hot to be in our building so rather than using energy to cool the buildings down we bring ourselves outside also by eating outside it's more convivial uh, there's a way then of interacting with your neighbors of being able to oversee what your children are doing when they're playing outside so it's all this idea of trying to have other ways of being um in terms of of changing the, the the landscape as well there's been a big investment in adding in fiber optic cables so that people can work from home and they can work remotely um, that people can access the internet as a form of uh, social equity and uh, access to information um, 
and of course people have the opportunity to sculpt those spaces as they wish so if people wish to grow food in those spaces they can if people want to use it as a as a, as a way of um, having public theatre or art events or festivals or music shows it's up to the community to decide how to do it so if you like it's a bit of both it's kind of showing what can be and then leaving the communities to work it out themselves but I say this as if it's all easy and all wonderful and of course life is never as straightforward as that. So an example is that in one of the one of these interventions, one of these super islands, um, the design was, was subcontracted to an architect's firm. The idea being that they that different it's a generation of different ideas and seeding of different ideas. And so rather than it always coming from the um, from the council, the council wanted to involve as many different creative practices across the city as they could. So in this one particular super island, the super island didn't exist, it was it was in formation, but they were trying to work with the community to work out a time frame to develop it. And of course there is an element of reticence across some communities because it's inconvenient, you know, rather than have being able to park your car outside your mm. apartment or get your bus to work, you have to walk a bit further. As you know, if you have children or you have people with mobility issues, it's very irksome. And so, you know, there are issues to overcome. And this particular architect firm decided that the, the, the uh, communication was not really flowing and that they just needed to show the community what could be done. So over the month of August, which of course is a great holiday month across all of Europe, a lot of people go away for that whole time. So uh, they, this architect firm chose the month of August to implement these changes. So these people came back from the holiday to find that they could not park their car near the house. Everything had changed and they felt they hadn't been consulted. So as we walked around the city, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? So as we walked around the city of Barcelona, in some spaces, we saw people really responsive to the super island. And in other places, we saw flags and, ba and banners saying no to the super island. Mm. So I think it's it's a really great example of the ways in which communication is so key to move towards these different types of living and livability within cities, and that everybody has to be included in the the in the process, even though that slows the process down. Yeah, that's interesting. And the, the last thing I suppose about Barcelona is the problem with the water. Um, I, I really like this idea of liquid power. Mm. Yes. Well, that's that's not one of mine. That's uh, the great Eric Swinjan Dow's work on um, hydro modernity in Spain and that connectivity between modernism or modernizing societies and the control of water. So hydrosocial environments. And I think that's really emblematic of Barcelona, actually. But um, uh, you'll see when you go, John, to, to Barcelona that there is this wonderful fountain called the, the Font Magica in the middle of Barcelona, yes. which is a, a, a light and sound show which happens on the hour during the summer months. It's a great tourist draw, so wonderfully garish colours of water. But it, you know, it draws people there. But it's very true in that um, it, within any urban space, the control of water, how water flows, how we, the metabolism of the city, how we get water in and out of the city is so important. And um, it would be very interesting to see what happens in Spain in the next few years 
as we have these independence movements and then what happens to those different forms of water governance in those spaces um, because water is power after all. I think other cities will be looking as well at, uh, at examples that they can follow and I'm just thinking about Lima where I've been not that long ago and their water from glaciers Mm. the impact of climate change and how that's going to increase the scarcity of the water for them and there are many cities like that yeah where, where the, the problem of water is is one that um, increases inequality if you're not careful uh, yeah absolutely absolutely and as you mentioned the the, the glacier you know, we think about in california's recent drought which lasted for such a long time and is likely to occur again because of their reliance on the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada, that um, climate change is really disrupting our all the all the if you like all the um, the systems that we have in place for water governance is all going to change and have to ha will have to adapt because the certainty of rainfall, whether it's the monsoon or whether it's the snowfall that's all going to change and i don't think our systems are in place to be as adaptive as we would like to think we are you know if we think about for instance the cape town uh, uh example of only being a certain number of days away from day zero when there was literally no water left um it's interesting how short-term people's drought memories are in that yes. we don't discuss that anymore you know um i know that that i know that the city of cape town are undertaking steps to try and make sure that that situation never arises again but whilst you have these huge swathes of tourism which are you know tripling the population of the city every year uh, against this decline in reliability of, of water supply these tensions are going to only arise again and again and, and again going back to Barcelona this is so true for Barcelona where the population of Barcelona troubles in the summer months and so this over reliance and this over abstraction of water is unsustainable and there needs to be ways of um, i guess working working with what we have and the knowledge systems that we have and thinking more cleverly about how we deploy water but also letting people recognize and think around the ways in which we use water and we uh, really don't value it because as long as it comes out of the tap we don't think twice about where it comes from mm. and we tend to think we tend to ignore the fact that as a product that has to be cleaned and transported and stored somewhere it's a very expensive item that we crucially depend on and yet we devalue so easily mm. well that's been fascinating um, we we're probably out of time actually but i'm going to i'm going to finish we started with coronavirus mm. so i'm going to just ask you how you feel after the 10-week lockdown do you think there'll be any change in the way people look at the, the landscapes that they've been using so so well of because that's all they've been able to go into mm. or well how do you how do you feel the future will be it's a very interesting question and I think I alluded to some of my responses earlier when I was thinking about the ways in which I think for some people not being able to access natural spaces has been critical for health and well-being. And that's almost been their first response is as soon as they can go out into the countryside, that's what people have done. I think what coronavirus has also done has alerted us to um, the shortage of urban green and blue space in most cities when i think about the ways in which 
if we look at London and the way that London parks were shut down, the mm. way that that disaffected that affected different proportions of the of the of London populations quite dramatically. Um, particularly for those with younger children that couldn't access outdoor space at all. Uh, I need to, I, I would like to think that that will now have a raised visibility, that people will start to think about, if you like, a right to green and blue space within urban spaces. I would like to think that thinking about expanding green and blue spaces is going to be a priority and that people will really value those spaces. I, I mean, one of the things I suppose that has slightly disappointed me um, has been reports of mass littering in outdoor spaces um, and so I think that's something that we somehow we need to we need to address we need to address how we use and value outdoor spaces because clearly they are really important to people for their health and well-being uh, and that's something they've been gravitating towards so I think that maybe there needs to be more education about how to really take care of our natural spaces yes um yeah that's what i really hope in, in in times to come and that also that we do take some of this slowing down and this self-reflection and thinking about the planet a little bit more and thinking about each other's lives and how we take care of each other it sounds a little bit miss world now doesn't it but i really do hope that we do take a little bit more time to reflect on what it means to be human and what it means to live with each other um and to do so with care and attention well, I think that's a lovely point to finish on. That's been fascinating. Thank you very much for talking to us today. And uh, it's been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you, John, for your time. It's been really wonderful talking to you.